You know how we're always looking for more diverse characters and storylines from publishers and creators? Well, Rosarian Publishing is a Black-owned company committed to diversity. They have a multicultural roster of over 40 writers and artists from all over the world, creating everything from steampunk to Afrofuturism to comics. Rosarium needs to expand, and that's why they need your help. Go to rosariumpublishing.com today and click on the Indiegogo button to donate and help them to continue putting these amazing stories out there. This is Van Jones with Yes We Code. You are listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. This is Mildred Lewis, creator of Agents of the Realm, and you are listening to Black Girl Nerds Podcast. My name is Tanahasi Coates. I write for The Atlantic, and I am the writer on uh, Black Panther right now, and you are listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. tuning in to episode 70 of the Black Girl Nerds podcast. My name is Jamie and I am your host. This show is titled W. Kamal Bell, Tiffany Haddish, and All Things Anime. So our first segment is with W. Kamal Bell, of course. He's a stand-up comedian. He's best known for his role in the FXX TV show called Totally Biased with W. Kamal Bell. And he's now hosting two new shows. One is a comedy concert called Semi-Prominent Negro and United Shades of America. So he talks to us about that. He geeks out over all things related to his career in comedy. And he's a self-declared blurred. So I think you're going to have a really good time preparing yourself for a lot of laughter on this show. I was in hysterics the whole time chatting with him. And this podcast segment is co-hosted by Karan, Cynthia, and Kayla. In our second segment, we invite Tiffany Haddish, yet another great comedian. Tiffany Haddish is currently on the NBC comedy The Carmichael Show, where she plays the character Nikisha. Nikisha, by the way, is my favorite character on the show. So it was an honor and a privilege having her to come on and chat with us about that show, about her career as a comedian, how she got started. And she does a one-on-one with Karan in this interview. Tiffany can also be seen alongside Keegan-Michael Key and Jordan Peele and Keanu, which comes out on April the 29th. In our final segment, we have a panel of experts on all things anime. 
In our panel, we have Valerie Complex, who is the founder of the Anime Complexium, as well as Aquia, Tara, and Jonathan. And they talk about debunking anime myths, which includes who does the anime community cater to exactly? And also the new controversy behind the Ghost in the Shell casting with Scarlett Johansson and how that's gotten so many polarized opinions on both sides with respect to people thinking that she's a very whitewashed character and also folks thinking that because anime characters are being perceived, quote unquote, as being drawn white, why is there a fuss over her being cast? And they also go into detail about various myths within the anime space that have caused a lot of people to be misunderstood about this particular subculture. So this is a really great show. I think you're going to enjoy it. And I just want to extend just a brief moment on the passing of Prince Rogers Nelson. Prince has been a huge impact in all of our lives. He is a musical icon and a force to be reckoned with. And we at the Black Girl Nerds podcast want to just acknowledge that. To all that are going through a lot of emotions during this time, I know it's very hard. I know it's very difficult because he was so iconic to us all. Just hang in there and know that his legacy is one that will never die and that all of us will celebrate him in our own ways. And I look forward to seeing a lot of great cosplay this year. I'm sure there's going to be some Prince cosplay happening at all of our favorite conventions, especially um, since he was so prolific in the comic book world uh, with respect to Batman, some of the greatest soundtracks of all time in the comic book movie universe was the 1989 Batman film that he that he had done. And also he was in a comic book by Dwayne McDuffie. Uh, so that's something that a lot of folks may not know about, but um, he was definitely someone that touched the lives and hearts of all of us in the nerd community. Just again, want to extend our prayers and our thoughts and everyone who was close to Prince, everyone who knew him personally, and to all fans that we just want to take a moment to remember him. And thanks again for listening. And don't forget, subscribe. We are on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And we are now on Google Music. So if you go to Google Music and look for our podcast, you can find us there if you want to subscribe that way. And share the links. Tell everybody. Let them know that Black Girl Nerds is available as a podcast that you can subscribe to. And finally... We are asking and encouraging all of you guys to support us by way of Patreon. We do have a link now. It's patreon.com forward slash black girl nerds. Patreon allows you to support us, the content creators, to allow these podcasts to continue to go into production, to allow the site maintenance to continue, to allow us to travel to various conventions throughout the country, to do events and coverage on all things related to the nerd and geek subcultures that we find is going to be very important and things that you need to know about. And running this website, running this online community does take a lot of expenses and we want to maintain our sustainability. I don't ever want this space to shut down because I can't afford it. So that's where Patreon comes in and that's where you, the supporters, we ask to step in and help support. So please, Go to Black Girl Nerds on Patreon. Again, it's patreon.com forward slash Black Girl Nerds. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you guys enjoy the show.
W. Kamau Bell is the host of the new show United Shades of America, premiering tonight on CNN. He's also the former host of the show called Totally Biased on FXX. And he's got a new comedy concert on Showtime called Semi-Prominent Negro. W. Kamal Bell is based out of San Francisco and has been doing comedy shows for most of his career. He also has a podcast called Denzel Washington is the Greatest Actor of All Time, period, featuring co-host Kevin Avery. Take a listen to this incredibly funny interview with comedian W. Kamal Bell. Welcome to this segment of the Black Girl Nerds podcast. My name is Jamie. I am your host. Guys, this is going to be a funny podcast. Get prepared. We have stand-up comedian W. Kamal Bell, who's best known for the TV show Totally Biased, and is now on the new host of United Shades of America and Semi-Prominent Negro. Thank you so much, W. Kamal Bell, for coming on the Black Girl Nerds podcast. Thanks for having me, but that's a lot of pressure to make it funny. I'm just going to come on here and talk about remembering my spirit. (laughs) (laughs) Totally <laughs> I love it. I love this already. We have our lovely co-hosts, Karan, Kayla, and Cynthia. Thank you, ladies, for coming on. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for having. Confession, I, I got to see your Totally Biased show live one day, so it's an honor to be here. Oh, which one was it? I can tell you if it was a, I can tell you uh, how I was feeling that day. <laughs> it was the, the episode with Issa Rae on it. Oh, that was a good day. That was a very mm-hmm. good day. She was great. I mean, I felt like, you know, yeah, I was I'm I'm super excited for her and everything that's happening. Yeah, it's, we love her. Big fans. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like it's a long time coming. It feels like what took everybody so mm-hmm. long? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I want to talk about you're doing a lot of stuff right now and you've got some new projects under your belt. Your new show that's going to be airing this Sunday at 10 p.m. Eastern Time on CNN, it's called The United Shades of America. It explores racial subcultures across the country. And in this episode, which I watched, you met with the Imperial Wizard of Arkansas <laughs> from the KKK, and you were driving down an abandoned dark road at night by yourself. What possessed you to do this, and what led you to doing this show? I'm trying to I'm trying to get this show to season two. I got two kids with new college funds. <laughs> do That's what it takes. Know. If you meet with the Imperial Wizard like at noon at a coffee shop without the robes on, who wants to watch that show? <laughs> I love it. I said, I said, bring your gear. Meet me at 2 a.m. No, I mean, I think that the funny thing is, I think that's that's the way those guys like to do it. They, you know, the there's a big mythology behind the clan that they created and that, you know, that's America's original boogeyman is the Ku Klux Klan. And they play into it as much as anybody else. They, you know, the reason why they wore those robes in the first place is so they would have, so one, so they would appear like ghosts, and two, so nobody would see their faces because even they were embarrassed. Mm. Uh, and so I think that that, the part of it is the dark and all that stuff that they, they, they want it to have all the power that it can have. And certainly everything we shot with the clan, I would walk into those situations going like, okay, this, this is whatever we're making a TV show, but how do I know there's not 50 clansmen in the woods waiting to run out at me at any point? So the thing I I think plays in the episode is that, you know, I I wanted to have conversations and be funny, but also I was also, can you say shitless on the show? Is that okay? I was was scared shitless. (laughs) Too late. (laughs) You already said it, so go ahead. Sorry, I I was scared shitless. Yeah, so I was scared shitless. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I was totally afraid, but also feeling the weight of history. Like a lot of times, like this is, I'm a comedian. I believe comedy isn't, can sort of like, 
comedy can be used for whatever you want to use it for. I think some people think maybe I'm using it to, I don't know. I feel like the comedy is a way to sort of demystify the clan and also to, but also bring them out in a different way that you haven't seen them before looking, you know, and also as a way to sort of get people to watch this thing that wouldn't have watched it. You know, the history channel does clan documentaries all the time, but you, who watches it other than me? You know, like it's just not. And so I was really trying to sort of see if I could figure out a new way to do this. You're super busy, like I stated before, because you've got another project under your belt with Showtime. They are premiering Semi-Prominent Negro, which premieres on April 29th. The title alone already has my interest peaked. Can you tell our listeners what this show's about? This is my. This is basically like a my my first hour long stand up comedy special. So this is just an hour of jokes. So if you don't like the first five minutes, you might want to turn it off because there's fifty five <laughs> more minutes coming. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's directed by Morgan Spurlock, who also works at CNN. But it's my first comedy special. You know, as a stand up comedian, you can do all these other TV shows and projects and podcasts and everything. But until you sort of release your work as an like as an hour special, you're sort of it feels like you're not really real yet. So. It's been a long time coming. I'm happy to do it. Happy to do it with Morgan. But also, semi-prominent Negro is what I consider myself. I what we call semi-prominent Negro status. Like if if the, if something happens in the black community and uh, Van Jones isn't available or Tanahasi Coates or Al Sharpton, eventually I get a phone call. Like it's just like so, <laughs> I have semi-prominent Negro status. Nice, Kamal. This is Karan, and I loved Totally Bias. Your show that was on FX and FXX. Oh, I was a uh-huh. I was the one. And I was a rabbit fan. I loved the awkwardness and the small set made me feel like I was there. You are my king of the underdog dudes. Do you miss it? Oh, thank you. That's, I, here's the thing. I don't think you would have ever said that nice thing to me if the show was still in the air. So, no, I don't miss it. Uh, I really do think the show has done this great thing where it is it is demise people have really sort of felt the need to speak about it and also to be about it in the world. And I think more people have been inspired to do other things. And so I do appreciate the fact that I think that the, the show's legend has grown in its demise, which I appreciate. And I wouldn't do that show ever again. I think there was a lot of extra special challenges on that show, as mm-hmm. I referred to it, like the, you know, the fact we were once a week and then five days a week and on a network a lot of people didn't have. Like I call it the Tuskegee Airmen Experiment of the Tuskegee, you know, <laughs> I just cracked myself up. You know what I'm trying to say? The Tuskegee Experiment of Comedy. Yeah, but I, I really do appreciate what has happened with the life of the show. Well, you were the first real anointing that we saw at the hands of Chris Rock. What was it like for him to present you to the world the way he did? And what's your relationship like now? I think you mean, what was it like for me? For him, I don't think it was a big deal. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but for me, for me, it was like, you know, I'd been sort of on the road doing a lot of independent shows and small clubs. I was never a big known name. And so mm-hmm. for Chris to do that, it certainly added jet fuel to my career and gave me suddenly people who had never heard of me heard of me me and suddenly people who never heard of me hated me because he had done that and so it was just a whole different level of thing i think there's some members of the of the rock thing aren't too happy about it <laughs> you know it was it really changed it changed my whole career without chris i wouldn't be here talking to you right now right now i sort of we chris has been in like he sent me a text when i got the show on cnn to say good job if i needed any help that i could reach out to him i just sort of think of him as like comedian in a glass case if i need if i really need him badly i'll break the glass case over. you can break the glass <laughs> yeah I just don't want to be that dude. We all know that person. I don't want to be the dude calling their their famous friend. Hey, man, uh, I just put something up on on uh, Facebook, and I was wondering if you could click like on it, because if you click like on it. <laughs> <laughs> so annoying. <laughs> hey, man, could you retweet my thing, Chris? I would, you can retweet it, then everybody will retweet That's it. That's like yeah. the new mixtape. 
Like, yeah, that is- <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> the trick is using your inside group, like, so to speak. Yeah. Wait, what did you like, say? Like, that's like the new, like, can you, can you listen to my mixtape? Except you're not literally spamming people, but you're asking people in your affiliate group yeah. if they can send, do the work for you. Yes, yes, yeah. Basically. And I, I- we and I've done that before, but I'd really try to be careful. I just don't want to be. I don't want him to see my. I, I want it to be that if I text Chris or call him, he answers the phone. He's like, "What's Kamal got going on?" As opposed to, the, "Not this Negro again." <laughs> <laughs> and he really did a lot. And for a couple of years, we, my career was really tied to his, and so I was really pretty interested in like making sure that whatever I did next, that I was sort of my own person mm-hmm. and not just like looking like the the long lost member of the Rock family nobody had ever heard of. <laughs> That's awesome. Kamal, what have you learned from doing Totally Biased that you're now applying to the United States of America? Like the great things and also the bad things, so to speak, the pros and cons. I think I really learned through Totally Biased. Like it was really like I I had never worked in that level of TV before. I'd been on TV. I've been on Comedy Central a little bit, but I'd never been like in that level of TV production. You know, it felt like I got like an associate's degree in TV production on Totally Biased. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Like, oh, that, like, literally not knowing what a segment producer does or not knowing how many cameras you need and, you know, all those things. I didn't know about any of that stuff. And now I know that stuff. And right. so now I use my associate's degree in my, in the job <laughs> I got. <laughs> I love that. And also, I think the other big thing is we talk about the whole Oscar so white thing and, like, really seeing up close the importance of diversity and when it's not there, how it manifests itself in so many ways that you right. can't even really explain to white people. Right. Like, you can't even really, like, you start, they'd be like, are you talking a different language? Mm-hmm. Like, for example, with this, with this, uh, with the, with CNN, with the CNN show, there was times when we were dealing with the clan and the crew was all white and I didn't hire the crew. They were hired by a production company. And some of that oh, they said it was because the clan didn't want anybody on the crew who wasn't, who wasn't white, but also that's in LA. It's a lot of white people in right. Hollywood. So, but at some point I was like on the thing, I was like, I just need a black person to turn around and look at right now. Like I just need somebody. <laughs> <laughs> it needs to feel safe. I, or somebody who can look at me and go, yeah, I'm with you, Negro. This is great. <laughs> Give it a head nod. And, and, and people don't think, people go, well, I voted for Obama, come out, so you can turn and look at me, right? And it's just like, it's not the same. It's not the same. And, and that's a lot of the thing in diversity is that you feel like you're not the only person who has from representing that side. You have other people who you can look at for some nuance. And I think that that's why it's important behind the camera. And the, one, the other thing that Chris gave me was that because I was an executive producer on Totally biased. I will always be an executive producer on TV shows that I'm mm-hmm. that I'm that are my shows. That's awesome. And, and the power behind the camera is like as Ava DuVernay has talked about, and Ryan Coogler. Right. If there's more of that behind the camera, Shonda Rhimes, then automatically what's on camera becomes more diverse because there's more people. There's more diverse people behind camera making those decisions. That's awesome. That's awesome. And I noticed that with your show, after being able to watch it, that you kind of give the viewers a look into the ways in which people of different races live in different regions of America. You know, and as we all know, America was a country built on profiting off of oppression, and it still Wait, does. Hold on. What? Hold on. I'm going to Google that real quick. I, 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 I dropped the bomb on you. <laughs> Let me go to Wikipedia. Oh, you're right. Okay, keep going. I mean, that's what America's built off of. I mean, that's why we're all here to even talk about the ways in which we're trying to help our communities. Yeah, yeah. So what have you learned on this journey that has further your knowledge of the United States and the way it treats its residents. You know, I think that a lot of this, a lot of Americans are, uh, it's funny, everywhere you go, there's a fear and sometimes a legitimate, sometimes not of losing what you have 
and being afraid that somebody's yep. going to take from you what you have in value. The privilege. Now, we did an episode in Portland that we went there. We sold to an episode about basically about like hipsters in Portland and maybe a little bit of gentrification that ended up being about hipsters and definitely a lot of gentrification. Mm. And so for me, it was like that's black people who've lived in Portland all their lives and are slowly seeing their neighborhoods stripped from them by people who come in with the best of intentions. You know, they, they don't see what they're doing is wrong. And I, my whole point was to try to connect those two groups and go to say to the hipsters, look, I like you. I like kale and kombucha, but you also have to see what effects you're having on the neighborhood. And so for me, that's like legitimate fear that the, like the black people we talked to in Portland or have about their neighbors being stolen. Now, the Klan has what I would like to call illegitimate fear. Mm. Black people aren't coming to Dawson Springs, Kentucky in mass to take your jobs. Right. What at all? Right. Exactly. <laughs> We're not coming to Harrison, Arkansas in mass to take your community over. So don't be mad when one family moves in. Mm hmm. You know, so I think, but a lot of it is about people that people have pride in who they are and pride in what they do. And then there's that thing about being afraid that somebody's going to take it from you. And I think it's the difference between legitimate fear of that, which is a, which is a lot of the country. Like we did an episode in Barrow, Alaska with, with native, you know, quote unquote native Americans. I say that because it's weird. I always feel like the weird term, but like the, the Inuit, I, I think yeah. that's like the political correct. Yeah. Term, I think. Well, it's funny up there. There's way more terms than we ever get down here. Really? <laughs> <laughs> People we talked to the Inupiaq, which is a, a very specific group of people there. The Inupiaq, when I'm saying it totally wrong, and I've said it twice now, they have the same fear of gentrification that black people in Portland have, except the difference is, as much as those black people in Portland have lived there for a long time, they haven't lived there since the dawn of time. You know? Right. And, oh, why? And these people are like, this was our, this is our, we are the people who settled this land, and now you're, and now we're being invited to leave, you know? Right. I mean, is that really happening though? Like in large masses, so to speak? Well, I'll put it this way. In the place we went, Barrow, Alaska, which is the northernmost tip of North America, 30 years ago, they were like 99% native of the, the, the like it, it was like 99% native. Something uh -huh. like way over 90%. Now it's 60% native. What? Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. So, and it's a town of 4,000 people. So it ain't that many people. It doesn't take that much to change the numbers. Like, you know, you know, you know, if, if, the, if we all go there right now, we change the numbers significantly. Jeez, wow. that's scary. Yeah. <laughs> they're, like, they're dealing with how do we maintain our culture while these people come in? Because there's a lot of good jobs up there because of the oil money. And it's and we're, they're not even talking about white people the way we normally think about gentrification. It's people from Thailand and Samoa who are just really? coming in jobs or to changing the face of the community. And they have to hold on to their culture while at the same time understanding that people have every right to move there. But it's like, where does that balance? Where's the balance struck? Do you think that there's like a certain answer to that? Because since that is like the issue with gentrification is being able to hold on to what made this place your home. So it's like, do, do you think that there's a, an answer, like a, a real progressive answer that if anyone were to listen to it, they could really take to heart and apply it to their communities? So you just want me to give away my, my uh, Nobel Peace Riots prize <laughs> right now? You want me to give it away? Sure, I mean, hey. <laughs> you, want to, you, want to, you want me to give away the thing that's going to get me to win the MacArthur Genius Award? That's what we just give away right now. <laughs> well, uh, we did have a MacArthur Genius winner on our last podcast, so yeah, maybe, we uh, did that. Probably a good idea. It's probably a good idea. Okay, yeah. we're going to keep the tradition going. Yeah. <laughs> be honest, I don't know what the answer is, but I do know what a road to that answer is. Is that mm -hmm. the people who move into these communities, and I've moved into communities too, where I was making more money than the people who lived in that community. 
they have to be confronted with an honest and open and awkward conversation. They have to be prepared to have that conversation about what are you here to do? Right. Do you know what this community means? And if you don't know what it means, then sit down and let us explain it to you. You can't, we have to make it clear to people in these communities. And because you have to know that you're, it's not, you're not invading and you can't be allowed to do it quietly. You have to either come in and join and become a part of this or find another place to live. You know what I mean? I don't think there's any worth in, there's no worth in taking over a place and not letting it be the place that the people at the core think it is. You, you know, right. for me, the show totally United States of America. Oops. I almost promoted the wrong show. United States of America to me is all about promoting the value of awkward conversation to initiate change. Mm-hmm. So if we have more awkward conversations about things that make us uncomfortable, about things we don't understand, it'll help us create more room for other people's humanity. And I think like in Portland was a great example of that. Once I talked to a lot of the hipsters about, do you realize what's happening here? And they would go, Oh, I didn't read. Oh, I, Oh no, I didn't. I didn't, you know, they just sort of are allowed to not take it in. Right. And I think the more that like, and I think there's a lot of black people in Portland working hard to make sure they don't take it in, but the more the, those in positions of privilege are confronted with and then forced to have those conversations. I think the, there's a better result that we get to together, you know, because it's it, it's not going to happen otherwise. Right. I live in the Bay Area now in Oakland. I live in Berkeley. I didn't want to. Don't blame me. But Oakland was full. Uh, <laughs> but Oakland is going through this right now. And there's parts of Oakland where I go, oh, it's starting to look like Portland here. You know, like it's like and I feel like Oakland is in the middle of I have a lot of friends and a lot of friends who are activists who are working hard to make people have those conversations. But I think the thing that I'm doing is that humor can invite people to the table in a different way than showing up on somebody's lawn with a uh, with protest now i'm a fan of protest too i'm just saying this is my way to invite the conversation mm-hmm. so this is kayla and i'm really excited to see the rest of the series were you apprehensive going into it and dealing with some of the groups you encountered because to me with the kkk they're out there and you know really upfront with their hate but going into a gated community with uppity people <laughs> their hate is i guess glossed over with intelligence quote unquote <laughs> so i don't know it was that more were you more apprehensive dealing with the kkk as opposed to going into a gated community and dealing with the people that live there do you mean that what do you mean by the gated community you mean the gated community of kkk or i mean yeah i guess so so were you were you going in and actually sitting down and meeting more than just the one or were you meeting just the one and then tons of them coming at you. And was it, were you apprehensive dealing with that? Oh, yeah, I, yeah, I was apprehensive the whole time. So no matter whether it was one Klansman by the side of the road in the middle of the night or whether it was, uh, whether it was a bunch of Klansmen at a cross lighting, like we did at the end of that episode, I'm being politically correct with not saying cross burning. Well done. Fired up. I'm trying to offer conversations. I'm learning stuff. Or whether it's like, but, you know, but going to the, what I call the clan compound, what they would call the, I don't know, the clan church. Like, yeah, that was down a road and up a hill. And that was the middle of the day. And that was the creepiest place I went to, of all the places. Oh, wow. Because there was the thing about the, the funny thing about the guys I went to for the cross lighting was there's a sense that like we were together long enough that sometimes it was like, yeah, I mean, I hate you and I don't want you to succeed as there. Oh, and I don't want you to breed with any of my people. But I kind of like you. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh, God, that is so weird. But here's the thing. Ultimately, I mean, I think, well, I think you might feel, I don't really care if somebody hates me as long as they don't try to stop me from living. 
Mm. Right. Wow. Absolutely. Like I, I don't. I don't think we. I, I don't think we have to get full on Rodney King. Can't we all just get along? We're, I don't think that's necessarily the point. I don't. You, right. you should not. Not liking people sometimes is, is proof that you're living a good life. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. Haters. Haters are gonna hate. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that that person should try to trip you up. And so I feel right. like you. You can burn all the crosses you want out here on your own property. You can you can sit <laughs> here and, and spew all the white pride, sort of like whatever you want here if, with your friends. Like I'm not gonna, what I'm gonna do, stop that. But if let's say I let's say something happens and my car breaks down and I pull up onto your property, get to know me first before you decide to kill me. Mm-hmm. Wow. So this being the black girl nerds, when you were younger, did you grow up identifying yourself as a nerd? And if you did, do you still do so as an adult? Uh, that's funny. I think I identified myself as a nerd much more as an adult than I did when I was younger. I'm of the age with that nerd just meant kid who got straight A's. Mm-hmm. Like that, yep. it was not, nobody was aspiring to be a nerd. Nerds didn't want to be nerds. Like, so it was like, yep. it was only after I got old, it's only in my, in my adulthood that like it came to mean like, you know, you'd see like, you know, Instagram models with all their stuff hanging out going, <laughs> I'm a nerd for <laughs> <laughs> like with oh, Star Wars shirts on and yeah, yeah. Oh, good <laughs> a nerd. Uh, nerd. <laughs> and so I which is fine, but so I, I certainly didn't think of myself in that way. But now I feel like I feel like the, the, the label blurred. I don't know how you guys feel about that. I'm sure there's opinions on that. But that's the one I feel like I feel like that to me encompasses living a black alternative lifestyle, which I certainly feel like I've been doing that my whole life and I'm glad to have a word that fits firmly on my shoulders. Yay. We embrace Yay. that word here. We love blurred, so I appreciate that. I didn't know. I didn't know. Sometimes you step into the no, no. Somebody will give you the etymology of it. Like I didn't know. (laughs) After you dropped that truth bomb about oppression, I was like, I don't know what I'm in for. Our very (laughs) first podcast was about the word blurred. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. Totally biased. Somebody asked me, like, what is it like to be one of the leading voices of the blurred? I was like, hold on a second. Let me Google. (laughs) Oh, that feels great. Is it on Wikipedia yet? I feel like there needs to be a Wikipedia page oh, for Blurred. Oh, oh, please. I have. I mean, my Wikipedia page is filled with lies and deception, but I would like to be linked <laughs> to the Blurred. Well, Kamal, thank you so, so much for coming on our show. Can you let us know where we can find you on the interwebs? Tell us again what time and on what networks your new shows air. And give us your social media handles where we can find you on Facebook, Twitter, whole nine. All right, let's do this. At W. Kamal Bell on Twitter. If you look up W. Kamal Bell, it will always link to me. I'm the only one of those. There are other Kamal Bells, but only one W. Kamal Bell. That's W-K-A-M-A-U-B-E-L-L. United Shades of America starts April 24th. It'll be on CNN. There's eight episodes. Starts this Sunday, April 24th at uh, 10 p.m. Eastern and Pacific. And Semi-Prominent Negro, which is my comedy special directed by Morgan Spurlock, is on Showtime. That's April 29th, Friday, April 29th, also at 10. And uh, I also I have a couple podcasts come out right now, which is a public radio show I do with KLW that's semi-regular. But my favorite podcast of all time, period, is my podcast, Denzel Washington is the yes. greatest yes. Time, period. Yes. Tell Jesse Williams we love him. We want him on the show. I heard yes. the episode of oh, you and I- Jesse Williams. I will tell him, but he's another guy. I'm like, I don't want to text him too much because it might get weird. <laughs> I'll text him for you. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be like, I, I got I, you. I just thought like I'd be at three in the morning. What's up? What are you up to? What's going on? <laughs> Stay woke, Jesse. Stay, Stay woke. woke. <laughs> oh, oh, in the vapors. 
Thank you so much, Kamal. Appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Not only is she a comedian, she has proven to be an unparalleled actress appearing in such diverse projects as the film comedy Meet the Spartans and the lifetime drama Racing for Time. Tiffany Haddish has played lead role opposite Charles S. Dutton and opposite Ice Cube in The Janky Promoters. Tiffany Haddish has also appeared on Kevin Hart's BET show Real Husbands of Hollywood, Fox's New Girl, and her recurring role on Tyler Perry-owned soap opera series if loving you is wrong. She currently stars as the role of Nikisha on the NBC comedy show, The Carmichael Show, which premiered earlier this year to rave reviews and was the most watched summer comedy, capturing 4.7 million viewers. And she's also slated to appear in the new comedy film with Keem Peel called Keanu on April 29th. Welcome to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. This is your girl, Karan, and today I have a very special guest. Uh, she is beautiful, she's brilliant, and she is funny as hell. Tiffany Haddish, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Yay! Yay! Now, you guys know <laughs> Tiffany. You know her voice. You know her face. She's on the Carmichael's and coming up in the new movie, Canu. Tiffany, how are you? I'm fantastic. I woke up today. I feel super lucky. Yeah, I'm I'm happy. Okay, so I'm going to tell this story. My daughters were at my house, and we were staying up late, kind of having our little jam session. And uh, at midnight came on. And Tiffany, you have to be hands down my favorite guest ever on any show. <laughs> Tiffany, your wit is so crazy. You're like a mega super feminist pimp. And <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love it. I love it. How did you get started in comedy? I got started a long time ago. Uh, when I was a kid, I used to like get in trouble in school a lot and stuff. But it really started with this movie called Who's Frame Roger Rabbit. Mm -hmm. And there was a scene in the movie where the detective says to the rabbit, why are all these people doing this nice stuff for you? And the rabbit says, because I make them laugh. If you make them laugh, Eddie, the people will do anything for you. <laughs> right? And so I was like, ah. That's what I need to do. I need to make people laugh. So I started like being goofy and silly mm -hmm. and like making kids laugh, but it was getting me in trouble in school. And I was in foster care. So my social worker was coming up to the school like every week. She was getting tired of that. So she was like, look, you got two choices this summer. You can either go to the Laugh Factory comedy camp or you can go to psychiatric therapy because something is wrong with you, child. <laughs> and I was like, but which one got drugs? Are you going to be on drugs if you go to therapy? Well, then I'll go to the comedy camp. And it just changed my whole perspective on life, my whole view of everything. It was the first time a man ever told me I was beautiful. And I didn't think he was going to try to hurt me in some kind wow. of way. You know, it's a, it, and, and then it was my first time actually being around, you know, celebrities or people that were celebrated on television. I remember uh, Chris Spencer was one of our mentors. And I was like, I seen him on BET. <laughs> he was hosting that talk show on BET at the time. And then Richard Pryor rolled in in a wheelchair and taught me the, the thing I think that has basically molded my entire existence. Richard Pryor taught me. He came in there in a wheelchair. He, 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 <laughs> he stops me in the middle of my jokes. And 
and I'm thinking I'm killing it, right? I think I'm just really just destroying it. And he goes, stop, stop. What are you doing? I said, I'm telling the joke. He goes, no, you're not. I said, yes, I am. He goes, no, you're not. I said, yes, I am. He goes, well, and he goes, no, you're not. I said, but what am I doing? He said, you're getting on my damn nerves. That's what you're doing. I said, what? Well, what do you mean? He's like, look, people don't come to comedy shows because they want to hear about your problems or they want to hear about what's going on in the world or politics or religion. Any, they don't care about none of that stuff. People come to comedy shows because they want to have fun. So when you're on stage, you need to be having fun. If you're having fun, they're having fun. If you're not having fun, they're not having fun. They're looking at you like, what did I spend all this money on this ticket for? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So have fun. And so I kind of took that concept with me in everything that I do in life. And I just have, try to have a good time no matter what, no matter where. Like I always try to have fun. And you know something, it shows, it shows from the inside out. Those of you who can't see, neither one of us have on makeup right now. This girl's gorgeous. (laughs) Your skin is like, your skin is like chocolate buttercream. Thank you, girl. That's because I'm Vaseline my face. Okay, Vaseline. The all salve of life. Mm, Well, I put (laughs) coconut oil to take all that makeup off and then I sleep with that on. I let Mm -hmm. that marinate. You down with the oil cleanse? Yes, girl. I be oil pulling and everything. Okay. <laughs> See, we girls. We girls. Like, yes. I'm like, what did, what did my people do back in Africa? Right. People oil. They sure did. Yes. yes. They sure did. And lived hundreds of years. So how did you hook up with Arsenio? Girl, that was... Okay, so... One of the main reasons why I stuck with stand-up comedy was because I wanted to meet Arsenio. Because as a kid, I used to sit up late at night and watch him and be like, mm-hmm. you're going to be my dad. You're going to be my friend. <laughs> you're going to be my buddy. Like, I would tell him <laughs> the TV and I was just like, dang. And then, you know, all these years I was doing comedy, what, 15 years, hitting all these clubs, missing him every time, never catching him. Like, oh, my goodness, how am I going to make him my friend? And then Little Rel Howery, who plays my husband, on the Carmichael show. He's been a friend of mine since. Yes, he's so funny, right? He's been my friend since 2006 or 2005, actually. We've been friends. And so he got booked on the Arsenio Hall show when it came back. And he's like, Tiff, you should come to a tape. And I said, boy, if I come to a tape, and I'm telling you right now, I'm going to try to rape Arsenio. (laughs) (laughs) And he goes... Tiffany, you are not gonna do that. Don't do that. Let's just let's get you a job there. I was like, yeah, that's a good way of thinking. Okay, that's a good way to get into. Okay, <laughs> <And> so <laughs> we get there, whatever. I watch him. He performs. We're in the in his dressing room, and uh, the booker, the show booker, comes by. She goes, "Oh, you are so pretty. What's your name? You look so familiar." I said, "Tiffany Hatch." She said. I've been hearing your name a lot lately. I said, yeah, I'm a, I'm a unicorn, honey. I'm a magical creature. You need to get me while you can. While I'm willing to let you catch me, you should catch me. Mm-hmm. So then she called me and asked me to do a sketch. And I did that. Who married a black woman? Um, I married a black woman sketch. And then, um, yeah, which was really funny. And then they were like, Arsenio loves you. They called me Arsenio loves you. He wants you to do another one. And I was like, when do I get to meet Arsenio, though? Mm-hmm. When am I going to be get to be in his presence? And they're like, oh, we'll, we'll try and work it out. Then they offered me stand-up on there. And I was like, and I told the producers, you guys know that um, you need to, uh, don't let him meet me before my set because I'm probably going to start crying and stuff. And they're like, oh, no, you're not. You'll be okay. And I was like, oh, no, I'm going to cry. I love him. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm in love with him. And they're like, yeah, right. <laughs> 
And then he introduces me before I go up. I thought I was crying. I really went, he was like, this young lady, not only is she smart and talented and beautiful, but she's going to do big things in the world. I was like, oh my God, he, he's done his research. He did research on me. Oh my goodness. And, and he said that I was smart. He said it twice. And it's like, anytime that a man says you're smart, I feel like it really means you're smart. Like, I feel like, because so many men have told me I'm stupid. You dumb. Mm-hmm. You ain't going to be shit. Like, so many people have said that to me that I kind of believed it for a long time. Mm-hmm. And then when it's like men of power say that you're smart or you're intelligent, like, it just, it touches my heart so much. <laughs> you know, it's it sometimes a little bit of a, of a double-edged sword because I, I had to ask somebody the other day, I can't figure out whether you like me or hate me because I'm smart. Because some men can handle it and some of them can't. Right, right, because they they prefer you be dumb so they can work you. But mm. uh, I, I don't care if it's a double edged. Like I don't care if they hate that I'm smart. Like oh, you're too smart. Like that's to me still a good thing. Like, like that what does that even mean though? Like, <laughs> <laughs> you're too smart. I can't run game on you. I can't. I can't manipulate you into doing what I want you to do. You're too damn smart. Like oh, like, you figured was, out I'm a cheater. Was uh, that your intent? <laughs> Oh, you're too damn smart. You were able to get the access code to my cell phone and find all the dirt. (laughs) Whatever. That's my ex-husband. So, um, yeah, so then he brought me out and stuff. And then I got to jump in his arms. And I was just so excited. And then after that, I feel like maybe he never had nobody that happy about him. Or he hasn't had anybody that happy about him in a long time. And so they gave me a job there for a while. And, um... Yeah, I was really devastated when it got canceled. I was and... too. It was when he came back, it was just it was so good to see him at night again. It was almost like the long the long lost family member that had been away for a long time and he finally came home and you could see him every day again and and when they canceled the show, I get it, but he's ours, you know? Yeah. He's always yeah, I, been ours. What? And that's when his place. Back- when he came back, I felt like Bill Clinton was back in office and we might start making money out in this month. What you say? <laughs> the, the good years, right? The good years. The good years. Now, the my favorite years. sketch that you did on Arsenio was the dating sketch where they had the guys lined up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Girl. 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 I was, you, I'm, I can't keep a straight face even talking to you now because I just, <laughs> my brain is going back because I was, I, I watch you all the time. I watch you all the time. I love rewatching stuff from Arsenio. I still try to stay connected on social media. So when I see something posted and some days I have a list of your performances in, in YouTube, like I'm totally standing for you right now. I mean, you, you are, you are becoming a household name in late night television. You are real. You're on, you have your sitcom, the Carmichael show, which is groundbreaking in and of itself. Cause I didn't even know who he was before the show aired and, and brought back some of our great loves of our lives with it. You know, the cast of the show is amazing. And then you have your buddy movie career. You're hitting a hundred, honey. You batting a hundred right now. Do you feel it yet? Do you feel it yet? Do you feel like you've arrived? Are you still on your way or do, are you in like a, a race car on your way? Or like a Pinto. I'm in a Tesla. Hello. (laughs) Slowly rolling up. That's what I feel like. I mean, I'm actually I'm in a Honda, and (laughs) I'm rolling to the Tesla dealership. I should have bought a Honda. (laughs) (laughs) I got me the HRV hybrid. That's what I did to treat myself this year. Mm -hmm. But 
Yeah, I, I feel like I still got a lot of work to do. I mean, people do say to me, certain people like, girl, I know you must be balling out of control. You rich now. What it feel like? And I'm like, I'm not rich. Not yet. Like, I'm still super concerned about, you know, I'm going to pay this bill. So, like, what's the next gig? Or is the Carmichael show going to get picked up again? Am I still going to be employed? Like, those type of things still concern me. So, and I guess they probably always will because of where I come from. So, yeah. Have I made it yet? I don't know. I mean, Kevin Hart threw shade at me in the, the last party he had. Really? And that's like my big bro. So I must I must have made it. He threw shade at you. Him. Oh, my God. Yes, he wouldn't let me on the other side of the ropes. <laughs> <laughs> and he used to always let me on the other side of the rope. And he goes like, I see you out here, Haddish. I see you. I see you out here. <laughs> and I was like, what's that supposed to mean? Can I get a shot? He's like, oh, you want a shot? Oh, yeah, yeah. You can have as many shots as you want on that side of the rope. And Ooh. so he had the he had the he had the the waitress handing me glasses of shots. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> what, the, what is I was like, what is this? Is this some type of initiation? <laughs> like, what is what is all like I don't understand the shade, this level of shade. Like, is there palm trees growing here? Cause See? It's, <laughs> it's cold right here. It's really Cool. It's sunny over there, but it's cold right here. It must have been cold inside on. your shadow. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so, okay, so I know a few years ago you had a partnership where you did a series of PSAs for Planned Parenthood. How did that come mm-hmm. about for you? I was on this show called uh, Snoop Dogg's Bad Girls of Comedy. Mm-hmm. And I was talking about how my grandma taught me how to value myself as a woman, how to think of yourself as a house. That's how you should think of yourself because men are going to think of you as property, irregardless. Like when mm. she, once you get a husband, he's going to think you got to take his name and he's going to think of you as his property. So you need to think of yourself as a house. You don't let everybody in your house. Mm-hmm. You you know, you keep your house clean. All this stuff. So I talked about that on stage. And then I guess one of the advertisers for Planned Parenthood saw that and was like, she would be great to talk to these girls. She would be a great influence. For these young people, you know, to not necessarily to say, oh, if you get pregnant, get an abortion, but to say, hey, think before you act, like yeah. value yourself, you know, get get the proper, you know, care, the proper things that you need to keep from getting pregnant before it's time, you know, because mm-hmm. uh, really, I think awareness is really what keeps teens from getting pregnant. Every teenager I knew coming up and in every teenager that I know now that ends up pregnant and stuff is because they don't talk about it. They didn't know about, like, they had this illusion of, oh, if he just pulls out, then I won't get pregnant. No, not necessarily. And these are little boys. They don't have control of their thing like that. (laughs) (laughs) These big boys don't have control of their thing like that. I know, I know. Have you seen Love and Hip Hop? Oh, my gosh. Oh, my (laughs) gosh. Don't get me started. Don't get me started. But I really believe, like, having those conversations with the with your children and really teaching them how to value themselves is important. So they saw that. They asked me if I would do it. I was like, yes, because I remember being, like, you know, 19, 20, and, like, needing a pap smear but didn't have any health insurance. Mm-hmm. You know, needing to go get checked up, you know, because I had toxic shock when I was 13. Wow. And I was like, and, and I hadn't even had sex or anything yet in the you know, they had to give me a pap smear and all this stuff. It was painful. And I had to do it twice a year, every year till I turned 21. But once I turned 18 and I was emancipated from the system, I didn't have health insurance anymore. So I had to, to, to prevent and make sure I don't have cancer. Not as I started going to Planned Parenthood and they helped me. They didn't charge me a dime. 
And I always said to myself, like, if I can get it, if I ever have a chance to give back to them, I'm going to give back. If I ever have a chance to do something to help Planned Parenthood, because I feel like they, you know, they kind of saved my life. You know, they looked out for me. Yeah. So if I could do that for them, then that's what I'm going to do. And that's what I did. And you know what? People have it so confused because I too, when I, when I was discharged from the Navy, I, I had a rude awakening about how much health insurance costs actually cost. Right. And right. I didn't have it. And I was able to get health care, OBGYN and prenatal care through Planned Parenthood, information, education, mm-hmm. the tools I needed to stay healthy. My first cancer screening was done. Um, mm-hmm. Pre-cancer was caught. Um, cerv- cervical cancer was caught early through a screening at Planned Parenthood. That did not mm-hmm. happen with insurance. Okay. Right. So it, I can, I attribute it to saving my life as well, you know, and mm-hmm. I, I, I just thought it was really, really honorable that you gave back in that way that you lent your voice. And I, I really think it's important that we do more lending our voice to causes we believe in and share these experiences because I was a teenage mother. Mm-hmm. That one in the background right there, she's 20. She'll be, <laughs> she'll be 27 in a, in, in a couple of weeks, which is mind blowing. But she, she turned out okay. I'm not sure about yeah. me, but we survived each other. <laughs> um, <laughs> But we we do. We have to share those experiences. Do you consider yourself a, fe- a feminist or a womanist? No, I consider myself a human that uh, believes in, you know, everything I associate with. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I maybe I am a feminist. I, I don't know. I mean, I really don't. I know what that means, but I just... Like, I also am, like, a big advocate for men, too. I think that, you know, they should take the lead. I, I, I really, it's a lot of, I might be sexist slash feminist slash <laughs> misogynistic slash. <laughs> it depends on the subject matter and what mm-hmm. we're talking about. Because when it comes to a household, I really believe a man should be taking care of and providing for the household. And if I have a husband, like, I think my job should be whatever, like, my fun thing is. And if it brings in money, great. Like, my hobby might be, I don't know, telling jokes. And if that brings in money for us, great. But he needs to be the breadwinner. He needs mm-hmm. to be the one making the most. Like, mm-hmm. that's that's how, in my mind, I'm going to be able to respect him and look up to him. Because I, I will say, I've been in a relationship with a man who did not have a job. Uh, when he had a job and we got together, he lost his job. And for six months, I was evil to him and nasty to him because I could not respect a man that don't have some kind of way of making money. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I just can't do it. I don't know why. I don't know why I'm so messed up about that. I just, I can't picture, wrap my mind around laying down with somebody. And then he he asked me for $50 for gas. I just can't wrap my mind can't around do it. that. Can't do it. I just, I feel like that's not a man. That's a little boy. You know, now you're my little brother and that's not good. I'm not opening Mm-mm. my legs to my little brother. <laughs> like I'm not doing that. So, <laughs> so get out of my house. Like <laughs> it just depends on the subject. I right. guess I, maybe I am a feminist because I do believe women are very strong and very powerful and we are creators. I mean, geez, we carry the life. Like we carry the seed. We mold the seed. We're the first person to make a baby laugh. Like you are a, a very powerful yeah. creature. And, and I feel like once women realize how powerful they are, it would be less women being abused and hurt out here. And it would be more, more female scientists, more female, you know, basketball players, more female, mm-hmm. uh, whatever. Like we can be and do whatever Ever we, we wanna want to do. We just have to believe that you can do it. That's Absolutely. it. Absolutely. What has been your, your greatest lesson as a comedian? What has been your greatest personal lesson? The thing that you've learned that keeps you going forward? 
my greatest personal lesson is that however I think of myself, that is what it is. Mm. And that's how, that is how you will be treated, how you treat yourself and how you think of yourself is how you will be treated. Like it's so evident. And I've tested this theory so many times at first I didn't believe it, but like a comic, this white comic said, Tiffany, if you stop thinking that you're a hoe, then people won't treat you like a hoe. And I'm like, people don't treat me like a hoe. I don't think I'm a hoe. He said, well, you, you talk like it. You make reference to yourself like it. So then, and then you wonder why this person is treating you this certain type of way. Mm. It's because of how you talk about yourself, how you treat yourself. And so then I was like, hmm. So I went on stage one night and I said, this night I am, like before I went on stage, I was like, I'm a genius. I'm a scientist. Mm -hmm. I'm a this, I'm a that. I'm well-respected in my community. (laughs) (laughs) Before I went on, like telling, like programming my body, Mm -hmm. like with this information, I go on stage and I tell the same kind of jokes, the same kind of stuff, but it was something about the energy in the room, something about the way the audience looked at me, something about everything. When I came off the stage, they're like, oh, I'd love for you to come talk at this school with these kids. I'd love for you to this. I'd love for you to... And I'm like, whoa, okay. I'm being well-respected in my community. I said it, and this is what it is. Like, it is what it is. What a man like, think it, so is he. That's yes, word. the Bible teaches That's that. Word. The Bible says. <laughs> the Bible, the Bible says. 37. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Psalms 218. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> from that I have taken that with me like so even in, in my relationships mm-hmm. I've learned like in my relationships in relating to comedy like how I think about this relationship like I like my relationship with Kevin at first I used to think he was like a god like Kevin's a god like he saved my life I was homeless I was living in my car mm-hmm. he saw all that crap in my car pulled me to the side, talked to me, gave me $300 and said, get you a place to stay, get you a hotel room or something. You should not be sleeping in your car. I was like, but I live in Beverly Hills, Kevin. I sleep in front of the most beautiful houses in Beverly Hills. And he's like, Tiffany, if you don't get your ass in a hotel room and stop it, take a a good shower. I was like, do I stink? He's like, no, you don't stink. I was like, I know, because I got these baby wipes on deck. I got the... I made sure my nails stayed done and my hair stayed done, but I didn't have a roof over my head. And it's so crazy how that like came full circle. He gave me that money. I got a room. Then boom, uh, I get a phone call the next day that there's an apartment available. I should check it out. It was the most rattiest, most garbage place. Crackheads had just moved out of there. The landlord's like, you can have it for $500 a month. I had 250 saved up with my own money plus his 300. I had it. And he was like, yeah, and the deposit, I was like, how about I just give you the $500 and I'll fix this up. And if wow. I can fix this up, then that'll be my deposit. And he was like, bet. To this day, I still have that apartment. It's been over 10 years. Do you? I still have that apartment. I have my, my sister staying in it, in it. When I moved out, my auntie moved in it. Like, it has provided for my entire family wow. pretty much. And uh, and the rent's still like six seventy five. It's only six seventy five after all these years. What you know? It's a cool one bedroom, and I always thank Kevin for that. And like, then Kevin put me on this TV show. Mm-hmm. Then the guy that produced the show, I used to sleep in front of his house. It looks like crazy shit. Like <laughs> everything wow. just comes together, and it's like now I'm coming up to this certain level, and I know 
I know what he's doing when he throws shade at me. And I, I know he's challenging me mm-hmm. and like and making me making me step up to the occasion. Like, like I want to be inside hit behind his ropes. Really, I need my own damn ropes to be behind. Say that. You know, say that again. That's what it really is. Like, Tiffany, get your own table. Like, I, I need to go ahead and just get my own table and have my own little entourage and let, you know, pass him a shot from behind my ropes. You preaching to me right now. <laughs> you are, ooh, you are preaching to me so right like, now. So like, I can't be mad at him. I'm not mad at him or anything like that. If anything, I love him more. He, he's always made me grow, always challenged me. Like, it's like, I don't even know why I started talking about that, uh, how I got from feminist to this. but Because <laughs> somebody, somebody needs it. I read a quote <laughs> yesterday. Who are you to determine who needs what God gave you to give? Right. That's right. why. That's why. Because right. somebody needs it. Yeah. Somebody's yeah. going to hear this. And they're going, yeah. the first thing you talked about when we started, when we started this interview was purpose. That was the first thing. Yeah. Girl. Whew. <laughs> I told you I don't know how to act, Tiffany. I told you I don't know how to act. Well, that's the main thing. I always, I feel like, you know, purpose is everything. You're here for a reason. You're not here for no reason. Even a crack whore, a crack prophet, they're here for a reason. Mm -hmm. They're here to show you, like, they might have made these bad choices in their life, but you can see that and say, okay, that's what I won't do. I'm going to go down this aisle, this way. That Their purpose was to deter you from that. Or to bring you to it. It's, I don't know. Your purpose might be to show somebody else how not to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Like every mistake I make, every time I fall, I'm like, okay, that somebody's going to learn from that. That that was supposed to happen. That was supposed to be whatever, whatever. Like I never like that. I do have shit with a coulda's in my life mm-hmm. for sure. Cause I'm a human. I should have did this. I would have did that, but I didn't. And now I know better. And if I see somebody else going down that path, I can say, look, when that this was kind of happening to me, I wish I would have. I wish I could have done this. And maybe you should take that into consideration. Try something different. I mean, I always a lot of female comics, you know, they're haters. But then there's a lot that actually see what you're doing and they try to help. Mm -hmm. And those women I admire and I lift up in any way that I can and try to be helpful to them in any way I can. Cause you know, they try to say, Oh, uh, you know, the comedy business is a cutthroat business and it's a man's world and women comics never support other female comics. We never support each other. And to me, that is not true. Not, that, true. not yeah. from my point of view. Anyway, maybe from another, another female's point, I've seen, I know a couple of females who's like, Oh yeah. all oh, y'all bitches hate me. Y'all all jealous of me. He was like, why, why would I be jealous of you? I'm here just like you're here. Mm-hmm. We're sitting in the same place. There's no need for me to be jealous. If anything, let's hold hands and fucking climb this mountain together and demolish this room, kill it, make everybody in here pee on themselves and be the hottest female <laughs> in the room. Right. Get her done. Why Why am I? In, I'm not in competition with you. I don't even believe it. I used to run track and field. I don't believe in competition. You are your own competition. I'm, I could be in a comedy competition. I'm not thinking of anybody as competition. It's just me. It's me that write these jokes. It's me that have to say them. It's you. You know what makes me so happy right now? I am completely like my whole spirit is jumping right now because you are as authentic and as funny as you are on screen. You are right in this moment. I'm like looking at you right now. You are light, (laughs) girl. You are radiant. You glow. You're beautiful. Tell us what's next for you. What's next for me? Well, the Keanu movie's coming out April 29th. And um, I'm super excited. My goal is, my goal is (laughs) to do 80 movies before I turn 45. So I have like 
uh, nine years to get it together. Okay. So I've been auditioning a lot for movies. I've actually been creating and writing my own content. And I said, you know, I got me a little camera. I got a garage now. I'm about to be in the garage making movies. Okay. Whether it just be a movie of me just sitting there talking. <laughs> How long I do it? Because I have to accomplish at least half of my goal. Sometimes I write these things out. Like I make a plan for myself. Mm -hmm. And I know they say when you make a plan, God laughs. And I just make, basically my plan is a wish list. Mm -hmm. And then I just give it to God. And then I look at it a year later and I'm like, oh man, like I usually accomplish half of that, Mm -hmm. you know? And then I'm just super proud. I celebrate it. I'm grateful for it, you know? So, and that's what I'm, I'm going to do that. I'm going to have an empire. Yeah. I want to be on Empire, too. I want Me to be too. on that show, too. I do, too. I want to be on that show so bad. Everybody. I just want to, I want to, I want to be, I want to be Jesse's discovery, you know, kick oh, Alicia just, out and bring me on, you know, oh, I want to be, I don't want to feel, I want food with Hakeem. I would let my daughter handle that light work, but I want to be Jesse's discovery. You know what, <laughs> you know what's hilarious about that is I went to school with his sister. Which and, one? Uh, Jesse Smollett. Which sister? Um, uh, Jazz, his oldest, the oldest girl. Because it's, it's, bu- it's about 10 of them? How many of them? It's, it's a bunch of them. Eight or nine of them. Mm-hmm. You know, they had their own TV show when they was kids. I remember. I right? remember that show. Right? <laughs> so I went to El Camino Real High School. I got bust out there. And I used to go to school with Jazz, the oldest sister. Mm-hmm. And she used to, we had like young black scholars and all that. We used to try to put on shows and everything. And I was a school mascot. And I needed a mascot track. And um, so I would like take these tapes and try to make it. And so I was telling her that I needed. She's like, you know, my brother, my brother, Jesse, he does that kind of stuff. That's what he does. He just he, wow. he makes music. And I was like, shut up. He makes music. And he's like, I think a year younger than me mm-hmm. or whatever. And I was like, oh, well, let, well let's go over. to." So I used to spend a night at their house. And they used to make, he used to make me these tracks. And I used to be like, one day you're going to be my husband. He's going to be my husband one day. He'd be like, no, I'm not. You're gross. Ugh. And I'm like, you're going to be my husband. I don't know how, but one day you're going to be my husband. And so then when I saw Empire, I was like, yes, I will make you my husband. <laughs> You'll be my gay husband. Yes! You will be my, you will be my bra. Yes. I will be your beard. <laughs> 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 I had that relationship with Alicia Keys on there. I was like, okay. Mm, okay the door's open. They trying to let me in. He said it's fluid. He said it's fluid. Because <laughs> everything I say come true. I feel like everything I say come true at some point. So. If he's not my husband on there, he'll be my husband on some movie or something. We're going to work together, and he's going to be my husband and Mm -hmm. or boyfriend. He's going to be something to me. Because with Rail, I used to tell, me and Rail used to talk on the phone every day. And I used to be like, one day we're going to play brother or sister or husband and wife or something. We're going to work together some kind of way on something. We used to make up stories and sitcoms and all that. (laughs) And then, boom, here we are 10 years later playing each other, husband and wife. Wow. Trying to get a divorce, but we stuck. (laughs) Okay. You're speaking everything into existence. I want to thank you so much for your time. I am a huge fan of yours. It's such a pleasure to meet you and to talk to you and to see your face. Awesome. (laughs) This is Karan for Black Girl Nerds Podcast. You guys have it. Tiffany Haddish. Thank you. Thank you. We'll see you soon. Our final segment is a panel discussion about debunking anime myths featuring Valerie Complex, Akoya, 
Tara, and Jonathan. They talk about all things related to the anime community and what it means to be a person of color who is a fan of anime. Take a listen to this very great discussion, which is very timely given the circumstances surrounding the Ghost in the Shell casting of Scarlett Johansson and also the recent casting of Death Note. Hello, everyone. My name is Valerie. Welcome to the Black Girl Nerds podcast today. I have a group of panelists here, Quia, Tara, and Jonathan. And today, we're going to be talking about debunking anime myths, especially when it comes to the idea of the way characters are drawn, uh, where the inspiration comes from, and who the anime genre really caters to. Those are pretty much the talking points, so I'm just going to get right into it and ask the panel, what do you guys think about anime characters and why they are purposely drawn with European features, quote unquote. That seems to be something that everybody thinks is the case. And I'll start by giving a little background on that. Ghost in the Shell is being remade into a live action film. They've casted Scarlett Johansson, who is white, as a Japanese character. So far on IMDb, her name is still Matoko Kusanagi, but you see a you know, a white face. So the argument is that most anime characters are drawn to look like white people anyway. So there's no problem with that. What do you guys think about this idea? Anybody can take the floor. Okay, I'll go first. And you know me, you have talked about this a lot. Okay, one of the things we got to talk about first is Japan historically. We know they've always been isolationalists. We know that they're not too keen on advancing with the times, so to speak, when it comes to letting other people into their culture and adopting newer ways of thinking when it comes to even things like doing business and things of that nature. But we also know that the drawing styles of anime comes from them copying Walt Disney. My thought process is this. I think a lot of times when people assume they are drawing anime characters with Caucasian features is because anime styling takes that from Walt Disney. I think that white people look at that and say, oh, that's us. And maybe because because we're all black, it's easier for us to say, well, they can just color them another color to indicate that they're Asian. But I don't know how people of Asian descent would feel if, well, actually, I do know how they would feel. They would feel like it's racist if you take a character that's supposed to be Asian and you color them yellow. And that's why they don't do that. And one of the things I've noticed lately is People over here in America, white people over here in America, they take everything that comes out in media and they immediately place themselves as default. And I think that's where all of that comes from. Tara, what are you thinking? So I'm probably one of the people that I never really looked that deep into it, especially growing up and watching anime. I was just like, cool, I'm into this. Like, hey, what's up? But as I started to get older and started to like come more into terms of my blackness, it was starting to be a little bit more like, hey, 
where are more brown people where are more people who like look like me and it's it may sound weird or kind of off but like i claim sailor pluto because if you look at in the manga guess what she's brown i don't care what anybody says she's one of us and then if you look at full metal alchemist and you look at azumi curtis granted she's pale but look at her hair i'm like yo she got locks that's mm-hmm. pretty dang going close mm-hmm. i'll take that she could just be a light-skinned black person i'm down for the calls but to jonathan's point i do think it just became like the de facto thing has anyone ever went to like some of the different manga cause and be like yo what are they are they asian are they japanese are they chinese are they white are they european what are they no one's really gone that far in depth into it or and honestly i don't i don't see why they would because it's that person's imagination let them do what they will do i still think there should be more people of color representation or maybe more definition as to yes this person is whatever maybe sure possibly it would definitely be nice again as people like we're going through a second almost like civil rights awakening of people recognizing their blackness and more kids nowadays with the good old internet being like i want i want to see people who look like me because that is important and there are obviously more kids now like super into anime and manga versus when we were growing up and you're that one weird black kid who liked anime and manga and you had to go talk to the white kids or no one about it. So seeing more people that are brown would be nice. But I, honestly, I'm not going to hold my breath about it just because it's coming from Japan. I can't say Japan needs to be doing this, that and the third where we as America. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, it's not my place for me to go out and just being like, oh, yeah, you guys need to do that. No. So let them do as they will and let us as America get our own act together, to be perfectly honest. I agree with you on that, Tara. And one thing that you said that um, that stuck out to me, you said something along the lines of because we over here haven't even gotten ourselves together as far as diversity and content, then we shouldn't. And correct me if I'm wrong, but we shouldn't be too worried about how Japan's diversity is right now. And like I said, correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't want to put words in your mouth and I don't want to misinterpret what you said. Also, too, I kind of feel like because we are probably less than 1% of the population over in Japan, they probably don't think about us as being included in their anime unless it's for a purpose like when you oh. get particular anime like uh what's the one oh man i don't know like michiko and hachi yeah yeah mm-hmm. that one or i don't know if any of you all have watched dimension w they specifically put africans in dimension w and a black guy from America in Dimension Dub. I think when they do put us in anime, it's for specific purposes. And it's also one of the reasons why I don't particularly clamor for them to include us in every single anime that they do. Because when they do do it, they do it with a purpose. And with a country like Japan where the majority of them are them, I kind of don't expect them to do it. Mm -hmm. Well, they're getting a lot better because, I mean, we've gone from 
I mean, I really don't, I don't care what people say about Mr. Popo as far as him being an alien or a genie or whatever, but that was the aesthetic. That was the aesthetic of black people. And at least we've come up and we're doing a lot better because I remember watching vintage, you know, I watch a lot of vintage anime and they draw, Mm -hmm. you know, blacks very stereotypical back then with the big noses and the big lips and, you know, the one with the buck teeth talking jive speak. And it really annoyed the hell out of me. But at least we're doing better. Mm-hmm. But I want to get to um, Aquia because I know she's been quiet. And she says she's a fairly new anime watcher. So what do you think about this? I agree with the, the earlier sentiment that they're doing a lot better now. But at the same time, like, I would rather, like, I would almost rather them not try to put more people of color in it until they do it correctly rather than just doing it like the stereotypical way and what they assume black people look like or act like. Like when I started watching Naruto, which I probably like middle of last year that like I'm currently obsessed with, like I, I wasn't looking for there to be a black person or, or any kind of person of color really. But like once we got to the cloud village, it was season like three or something. And we got to the Raikage and like everyone in that village is brown. And like the first person that we saw was Killer B. And I was like, okay, we have brown people. I like the show even more. And then he started rapping and was like, why does he have to be a rapper though? <laughs> I don't yeah, care. He bothers me as a character. Like, I'm going to just toss that out there. I don't care if yeah, he is brown. Yeah, I was really he, like upset about yeah. that. I was, I was upset about that. But then like you continue to, to get in, into the story. And like his, the Raikage is like one of the best people in the show. So like I forgive them for the most part for, <laughs> for, for Killer B. But like, I was really upset about that for us. So like, I, part of me is just like, just do it the way that you feel like you should be doing it just with Japanese characters. Well, if they're going to call them Japanese characters, cause they do look European to me, but I feel like I don't need it unless it's going to be done correctly. I think when you get, when you look at shows like Nichigo and Hachin, which is a good show and it's, it's the first time that I can recall a Brown person has been lead in a show. Mm-hmm. Her character is still stereotypical with being sassy and, you know, having an attitude and screaming and being super loud and dressing, you know, a certain way, which is, I mean, fine. You know, I love the show and stuff, but it's still they. I think, you know, there's still a a mindset that they are locked into that might be, you know, 15 years past due. You know, it seems like they're at least. 10 or 15 years behind where we are. So I want to read something to you guys from the anime exchange that talks about why the characters have large eyes. And Jonathan hit on it earlier, but I'll just read a little bit of it. Anime characters have large eyes. This is generally attributed to Osamu Tezuka. I hope I pronounced that. An artist uh, prolific enough to be called the father of manga and the creator of Astro Boy. At the time of Astro Boy, Tezuka was inspired by precursors in animation, largely those of Walt Disney, but including others as well before adapting them to more Japanese stylization. Two such characters who served as inspiration were Mickey Mouse and Betty Boop. So there goes that. Mm-hmm. Mm. And so, but the key here is Japanese stylization. Mm-hmm. So whether or not they have big eyes, apparently they're supposed to represent Japanese culture? I don't know. That's what I'm taking from that. What do you guys take from that? I don't know, because then you get into how do you reconcile that with, say, and I'm using this anime 
again as an example, Dimension W, three specific characters on there are directly from Africa. They mentioned they are from Africa, but one of them has white hair. They all have the big eyes like that. So all they are is they don't draw them in stereotypical blackface. They draw them like they would any Japanese character. Their skin is just brown. The 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 one black woman out of the trio, she has kinky hair. She has long hair, but it's it's braided up and kinky like a black woman's hair. So I don't know because you have that and then you have say bleach that takes place in Japan. They are in cities in Japan. They are drawn like that too. But then you have what's the what's the one about vampires that he wears red? Helsing. Yeah, Helsing. Most of that, most of those characters are of German or English descent, if I recall correctly. So I I think it's more of a stylistic choice rather than those physical features represent represent Japanese people specifically. Well, you know what? You bring up a good point, and that'll get me to my next point. A lot of people have said that, you know, Japanese anime is for the Japanese demographic. Mm-hmm. You know, they utilize a lot of Japanese stylism and you know the characters are mostly japanese but Mm -hmm. then you have stuff like clan lad and berserk and things that take place in european settings and the characters they don't have japanese names so you affiliate them with the european aesthetic even though they're not drawn that way Mm -hmm. so how is it that they can attribute to their culture and to european culture but not anywhere else what Let do you me. think about that, Aquia? You know, it's not something that I had thought of that much before before we decided to do this podcast. But I kind of feel like, like I agree with what Jonathan, Jonathan was saying, or like the kind of, not just the using Disney as a thing, but I feel like they kind of like idolize European aesthetic as a whole, if that makes sense. And like, that's probably like a lot of, like not just using them as the, like with the bigger eyes and and different hair, but like using their names also, and rather than like a traditional Japanese name. So I feel like they're trying to to get more towards that audience rather than everyone. Like it's, it's the we just want European audience, and that's the their goal. I feel like. What about you, Tara? What do you think about it? Uh, kind of like Val. I honestly hadn't thought about it beforehand, but if I were to take a stab at it. Disney aside yet again, you have to look at what was also going on at that time that manga first started coming out or anime as well, which was a 19, or say 1950s, 60s. I don't really remember. I did my senior project on this and I'm ashamed that I don't remember. Anyway, <laughs> even still, parts of Asia were being colonized by who? Europeans. Um, when you look at what was going on, which were wars, which was happening with who? European countries. Africa as a whole, we kind of just kept our hands out of stuff. Like, we really weren't mucking around in anything. People were just snatching us up. And we went where we got snatched up. 
So when you're looking at what else is going on in the world, maybe they were just like, hey, there's only us, some of them other Asian countries that we don't like, and white people. So they're appealing to a larger demographic that's available to them because that's all they see. And again, I could be wrong, and I'm hoping I'm not stepping on toes by even saying that, but I I don't know. It's nice to see different people of color. And I also look at it from the perspective of, well, what is that anime about? What was that particular um, manga call or whoever was, you know, producing the anime? What were, what was the thought behind it? Again, I just throw out Full Metal Alchemist. That was based in Europe. They got, you know, European names. Edward and Al are blonde-haired, blue-eyed children. That was based in Germany. A lot of people may not necessarily do that background information, even know where the anime itself is stemming from. Jonathan mentioned Helsing. Well, that's pretty much based in England. We can guess that. All the rest of them, we all know. So let's just assume they're all taking place in Japan for all intents and purposes. So I, I don't know. And there, it seems like they're not ever taking place in anywhere outside of anywhere else that we majorly laying claim to. So like Germany, England. Like some parts of the states, New York, I forget which one, but you know, like Mimi from um, Digimon, she went to New York, if memory serves correct. Not to say there's a bunch of white people there, but still, I think <laughs> New York, like I'm pretty sure people automatically seem like white people. So, yeah, that's just my thought on it. Jonathan, what do you think? Tara hit a lot of points on the head with pretty much everything that she said but um to add to what she said terry you mentioned germany you guys got to remember too world war ii who were japan allies with that's exactly why i said from a historical standpoint you got to look at what's going on when anime really first started to pick up and take off i i can do a really quick google search on when actual war first came out but I really do want to say it was during a time where it was either right after a war, during a war, or like precursor to one. Mm-hmm. So all you're hearing about are these major access powers and the allies, which those are all primarily European countries. 1952 um, is when Astro Boy manga first came out. You know, what's interesting is the company the production company that financed Michiko and Hacha, because if you've watched it, it takes place in a fictional sort of Latin American place that sort of resembles Brazil. Mm-hmm. Now, that company, they did uh, at Samurai Shampoo and Cowboy Bebop. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also did Gangsta. And as you know, those those particular animes had, you know, either a hip-hop influence or people of color were featured mm-hmm. or whatever. Those are some animes that really took risk in their style. And what's interesting is that those particular animes weren't very popular in Japan, but nope. were popular here. Like Michiko and Hachin is from 2008, but got popular here last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, same thing happened with Cowboy Bebop and things of that nature. And now the production company is out of business. Mm-hmm. They have closed doors. I'll get the production company out in a minute, but... I just thought that that was interesting how, you know, there are companies out there that are putting that out there, but I guess Japan isn't taking to it, really? I don't really know. It's it's very interesting to think about. And I know that I, I, I mentioned just before we close up 
I know I mentioned um, Mr. Popo. Can you give some quick thoughts on what you think about that and where you think that idea comes from, where they get, where they would think that would come from? Just off the top of your head, nothing too deep to think about. I don't know. Mr. Popo is problematic. And watching him as a kid, I didn't think too far into it. As an adult, I was just like, yeah, okay, come on, guys. And, I mean, they tried to make him a little more light and kind, and I'm like, come on, guys. Y'all know y'all still wrong, but that's (laughs) fine. I get it. Let me think. Dragon Ball came out in 1986, if memory serves correctly, which means they should have known better by then. Minstrelin wasn't, like, that deep. But then again, if these people were growing up in, like, the 50s and 60s, they didn't start drawing until they're in their 30s. So what they grew up is seeing, menstruating. They're like, oh, that just must be how things are done. And then it gets drawn that way. I don't know. Try not to make it too deep, like you said. I was just curious to what what you guys thought. But I just wanted to put it out there that uh, there are a lot of creators of color creating manga, you know, featuring characters of color and black characters. And some of them include Teflon Funk, Cannon Busters, People Chew, Love Love Fighting, and the Tuskegee Airs. Just in case you hadn't heard mm-hmm. about Tuskegee Airs, I can't wait to read, honestly. I'm just throwing that out there. I really can't yeah. wait to read that. I've read Love Love Fighting and it's a very interesting story. Um, if you like character building or anything like that. But those are just some of the ones that are coming out featuring people of color. But now that time is sort of run out. I'm gonna go around and um you know, put your your affiliations out there, who you're affiliated with, your companies, your websites, your social media, all that stuff. And I'll start with Jonathan and then Aquia and then Tara, and I'll go last. Well, you can catch me on Slander Entertainment. I'm one-fourth of the Slander crew on YouTube. We are Slander. You can pull us up as YouTube forward slash either Slander ENT or Slander Squad. I think it's Slander ENT. Um, we're also on Facebook as Slander ENT, and we've been currently doing videos for the TV show Arrow. We've been doing after shows. Um, our current video is up, and it seems to be shooting off in popularity. You can check us out there. We will be at MomoCon if you're in the Atlanta area, and we will be at DragonCon. We will have panels. More of that information will start trickling out on our pages as we get closer. Yep, Aquia, you're next. So I am on every social channel as a stylish Jedi. That name is probably going to change soon because I realized I need a cosplay name, which I didn't know was a thing before. But I'm also a co-manager of Geek Girl Brunch New York City chapter. And our April brunch, which will be at the end of the month, which is actually themed anime for the month. So if you are in New York, please feel free to come. And you can find us on Twitter at GGBNYC or on Facebook at Geek Girl Brunch NYC. All right, Tara. Mine is, uh, I'm on Twitters. Not barely. God, I'm barely on Twitter anymore. But you can find me there at Simply Sundra. That's T-S-U-N-D-E-R-E. Anyway, that's where I am on Twitter. I'm also on Instagram as Sweet Sundra. So same spelling of the last part. Also, if you're in the DC metro area, you can find uh, me kind of sort of on Facebook at DC Kwai style. We're a group based out of, again, the DC metro area, and we do a lot of focus on 
Japanese culture as a whole, Lolita fashion, kawaii lifestyle, all of that good jazz. So it's DC, kawaii style, and kawaii style is one word. Find us on Facebook, like us, Instagram, all that good jazz. And last but not least, I am Valerie Complex. You can find me on Twitter at Valerie Complex. Um, I am also the founder of the Anime Complexium website. It's anime, C-O-M-P-L-E-X-I-U-M dot com. That's also on Twitter as Anime Complexium. And you can find me on Instagram at anime underscore complexium. And I live in California. I will be speaking at KrakenCon, having a panel there. I am at all the major cons this year. I am even going to be at DragonCon, so you can find me there. Also check out our 10 list of 10 black cosplayers you should be following on social media, on the AnimeComplexing.com website, and share. And thank you very much for our panelists being here and giving their thoughts. And this is a Black Girl Nerds podcast who I also write for. So take care and have a good week. The passing away of Prince has weighed heavy on our hearts. In episode 61 of the Black Girl Nerds podcast, I interviewed Van Jones, and he discussed his work with Prince with the organization called Yes We Code. Yes We Code was inspired by a statement made from Prince himself about the depiction of black kids compared to white kids. So take a listen to this snippet by Van Jones as he discussed why Yes We Code was developed how it was developed, how Prince was involved in that development, and also where they plan to go with this organization. And to learn more about Yes We Code, go to yeswecode.org. We had the chance to meet briefly at San Diego Comic Con last year, and it was great, great to meet you. And we talked briefly about Yes We Code. Can you tell us a little bit more about the organization? Because I, I really love to hear about organizations that reach out to young kids in the community and especially in the inner cities and teaching them how to build programs and learning how to do programming and coding. So tell us more about that organization that you that you're part of. Well, you know, I've been very blessed to have the rock star Prince as a as a as a friend and as a, a mentor and as a supporter of my work for quite some time. Uh, he actually put about a quarter million dollars into helping solar panels get put up in Oakland. And we've been working together ever since. After the Trayvon Martin catastrophe and the horrible outcome of letting the murderer go free, mm-hmm. Prince said something very, very shocking to me. He said, uh, he said, why is it that when you see a black kid wearing a hoodie, you think it's a thug? But then when you see a, a white kid wearing that same hoodie, you think, oh, well, there goes Mark Zuckerberg. Mm-hmm. I said, well, that's because of racism. He said, well, it might be because of racism or it might be that we have not created enough black Mark Zuckerbergs. Why aren't you civil rights people focusing in on that? And it just blew my mind. It was just such a a punch to to the gut. And so we we looked into it and we figured out that we were falling short and that there were going to be a million, one million jobs in the technology sector more than they were going to be able to fill over the next eight years. In other words, a million jobs over the next eight years standing empty, and yet African-American unemployment off the charts. So we said, what if we created Yes We Code and tried to fix it? And so what we've done, very simply, we realized 
that you don't have to go to MIT or Stanford or Harvard or any of these fancy schools to get a job as an entry-level computer coder. If you have just basic mathematical literacy and you're willing to, to work hard, you can be trained for those jobs even without a college degree in only three to six months. Nobody knows that in our community. And so we said, well, hold on a second. Uh, you mean to tell me that somebody who can basically do a little bit of algebra, even if they don't have a college degree, could get one of these jobs making $80,000 a year starting out? And I said, that's amazing. So then it turned out that there were these boot camps that were teaching this stuff at such a fast rate, and yet it was almost all white, and it was priced out of range, fourteen, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 for three months. That's a lot of money for a lot of African-Americans. So we said, well, hold on. The boot camps are teaching the right stuff, but they're not reaching the right young people. Then we said, but the community colleges, they're reaching the right young people, very diverse community colleges, but they're not teaching the right stuff. So Yes We Code's great innovation was we brought the top four boot camps together with us and the California Community College System to create a special track that can reach into our communities, but then teach the right stuff. And then we cut a deal with 13 technology companies to place our graduates this summer into highly accelerated apprenticeship tracks so they can start having jobs in places like Twitter, Pinterest, etc. This is the kind of stuff that a social entrepreneur does. You look at a problem and you figure out where is the solution. If the community colleges have half the solution, the boot camps have half the solution, and you can get these companies to help you, you can very quickly solve something. Now, can you imagine when you start seeing African-American, Latino Young women and young men walking around in the neighborhood with $80,000 in their pocket that they got, that the cops can't take, that they can't get in trouble for, but they earned it by a three to six month program. We think that could begin to change everything. So that's yes, we code.